Our first objective always as we come together to worship God is to lift Him up in praise and adoration, to give Him those things that He is worthy and due. A second objective is to be edified and built up, to do that for one another as a part of the assembly today, and to also leave here better prepared to live close to God in the future. We want to thank those that are not normally with us and let you know that you're our honored guest and we appreciate you being here and invite you to come back at each opportunity that you might have. We want to discuss the subject of miracles this morning. I invite your attention as we open God's Word and explore the idea, the issue of miracles. Miracles are a prominent part of the New Testament. From Matthew through Acts into the epistles, we see a recording of many miracles. We find that Jesus performed the most miracles and the greatest miracles. The apostles performed many, and other people we find are recorded to have performed several. The Bible is clear that these miracles were performed through the power of the Holy Spirit. Today we find men and women who claim to perform miracles, claim to be connected with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is entering them now and causing them to perform certain works. We have assemblies in our local community that are practicing that. We commonly see TV preachers that are practicing the same thing, saying that they are... Uh, miraculously healing those that are sick or afflicted, that they are teach, speaking in tongues, that they have direct prophecy sent from God. There is much confusion as to whether these things are false or if they're true. Certainly miracles are a Bible subject, but we find as we search the Scriptures concerning them that these things were done away. And so as we study today and finish, complete our study, we will be in, able to go to God's Word and to cite the passages and the principles that teach us that miracles have ceased. First, we want to define our term. A miracle is an act of God superseding or suspending a natural law. This is a biblical perspective of the definition of miracle. Now, a lot of people use the word miracle in a much looser way. I found a person who described a miracle, miracles in this way, and I quote, Miracles do happen every day, all day long, because around us life bursts with mysteries. A glass of water, a ray of sunshine, a leaf, a caterpillar, a flower, laughter, raindrops, a tree budding in the spring, and the birth of a child. If you live in awareness, it is easy to see miracles everywhere. The universe is big, it's vast, it's complicated, and yet simple. And so we see a contrast here in the way that this word miracle is defined. Certainly it is proper for us to understand that God can be seen in the, in the universe around us. All of the things of nature that are simple, all of those things that are complicated, all of the universe put together certainly 
can be seen, God can be seen in that. David said in Psalms 19 verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of the Father, and the firmament shows His handiwork. We're also taught in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 20, which we will be covering this evening. Paul says that we're without excuse in having a knowledge of God because God, through His creation, has given us invisible attributes that are clearly seen. So it is certainly correct to state the sentiment that we see God in creation and that nature is a marvelous and wonderful thing. But as we look back to this definition, there is not a single thing listed in this person's definition of miracles that is not within the scope of nature. And remember, the way the Bible defines the word miracle, it is something that supersedes or suspends natural law. So we can't use these loose descriptions or definitions of what miracle means and go to God's Word and determine His will regarding this issue. I want to use the illustration of the birth of a baby to show the difference in what is a part of nature, what might be a providence of God, and what might be a miracle. The birth of a child is working of natural law, not a miracle. Though it is a marvelous thing, childbirth is simply the working of God's natural order set forth in the beginning, seed bearing fruit after its kind. So we see that this would be nature. It would not be proper to say that the birth of a child is a miracle. Well, what about the providence of God? Certainly the providence of God at certain times in history has been shown through miraculous acts. But today we find that God's providence is seen within the, the natural order of nature. And we might use the birth of Samuel back at, recorded back in 1 Samuel chapter 1 as an example of this. God's hand is seen in Hannah being able to conceive, yet she did so by natural means. God worked within nature to bring this about. A miracle, on the other hand, could be shown in the virgin birth of Christ. This birth was in no way an act of nature. God was involved in this. Christ was born as a miracle of a virgin, and so it went beyond nature or providence. It was supernatural. And when we get these different perimeters in our mind, then we can go to God's Word and we can look at the things that are taught there and sort through these and see how that the, the miracles were used in the first century to bring about the church and then God ordained that they would cease once that had taken place. Before moving forward in our discussion on this, I think it would be well for us to think about God's overall method of work through the ages of time. God begins things with miracles, and He continues them without. And this is a pattern that we see beginning all the way back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God created this universe by the power of His Word, with an unparalleled sequence of miracles. We've already talked about 
seed bearing its fruit after its kind, that this was a law of nature that was put in place back in Genesis chapter 1. Before this was put in place, however, God created all of our universe by His spoken Word. He took nothing and He made all of these different things. And the Bible teaches us that on the sixth day, He rested. The amazing part of these miracles that were performed on the first six days was the fact that He set things in order in such a way that the initial creation of the universe continues on in an orderly manner. From those first six days of creation and those magnificent works and and miracles that were performed, creation continues on. And only God will be able to stop this universe when He chooses to do that. God created only one man, Adam, and one woman, Eve. He began humankind with miracles, but He continues humankind without miracles. As we said, the birth of a child is something that comes about because of a natural law that God put in place. This universe began with miracles. It continues without miracles. Humankind began with miracles. It continues on without miracles. And so we want to look that in a very similar way, God's revelation that we have in its complete form in the Bible began with miracles, but now God's revelation moves forward without miracles. Once the Bible was complete, miracles no longer were needed. God's message is carried on by non-miraculous teaching by uninspired men. Today, I claim no inspiration. I'm not able to have a direct link to the Holy Spirit as I speak to you this morning. My link is through God's Word. That's why we're putting God's Word up and calling your attention to the various section of it, sections of it that apply to this subject. And this is the way that we want to approach any subject that is of religious significance. We want to take it. We want to go to God's Word. We want to rightly divide His Word. We want to take the information that we're given. We want to leave it in context. We want to let the Bible be its own dictionary and define the terms that we're using. And when we do that, we can come to a knowledge of God's revelation. And miracles have nothing to do with that process today. They had everything to do with it in the first century before the Bible was completed. So this is the nature, the pattern that we see that God has used through time, and we see it applies in this revelation of His Word. So now we want to go and look at some of the verses and some of the examples, and we want to show you by the Word of God how that these principles that we've just stated are true. We learn from scriptures that the purpose of miracles was threefold. It was to cause men to believe in the Lord. It was to confirm His Word. And they were used to assist in delivering truth to humanity. 
as we look at the purpose for miracles, then we can see how that they were brought into being at a specific time. They were used for that purpose. And then we can determine when that purpose was fulfilled that they were no longer needed and they ceased. So let's take these three purposes for miracles and let's look at some verses that point this out. So miracles were used to cause men to believe in Christ. John 20, verses 30, 31, And truly, Je- truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. We know that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all recorded the deeds of Christ, the teachings of Christ. And in the deeds of Christ, we see these miracles being performed. They validated who Christ was, that He is the Son of God. He performed things that superseded nature where there was no doubt that it could have come from any other source. And by doing that, He proved that He truly was the Son of God. And we see that to be the case by these words. But not only did He do that in the time of His personal ministry, But these things were recorded. They were written down. And we see here, according to these verses, that readers believe in Jesus because of the written Word. The Word is a permanent, error-free record of His teachings and a record of these teachings being confirmed by miracles. They prove that He is the Son of God. And I would submit to you this morning that a truth once confirmed is forever confirmed. A fact once confirmed is forever proved. People of our age believe in Jesus because they believe in this book of miracles. Ever since the close of the first century, people who have developed faith in God have done so because of the revelation of God. They have not seen miracles Neither do they need to see miracles to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In a large way, we can think about the purpose of miracles and we can put the written revelation of God, His complete revelation in its complete form, we can put it in place of miracles and it will achieve the very same purpose that these miracles did in the first century. In Romans 10, verse number 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Our faith is not dependent upon seeing a sign. You know, Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he said the Jews seek a sign and the Greeks wisdom. There are certain people that will not believe in God without a sign. That sign is not going to be delivered in any other way other than this precious book that is a recording inspired by God that is fully sufficient for everything we need. This is what we need to develop faith, to understand that Christ is the Son of God, to understand God's message that He wants us to follow in our Christian lives today. Let's notice Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and we will see more specifically that the miracles were used to confirm this written Word. The Bible says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him? 
God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own purpose or His own will. So what was the purpose of these signs? They confirmed Christ initially to be the Son of God. They confirmed His Word to those that were there and were witnesses to the miracles. But not only that, the Bible says that God bore witness to those who saw Christ, who heard His Word, and who delivered that orally. In addition to the teaching of Christ, we have the teaching of the apostles, we have the teachings of those that the apostles taught. And we have a record of that in the New Testament. We have a record beginning in Acts chapter 1 where the apostles were the ones that took responsibility. They instituted the church and they brought it into reality. And God was there confirming what they did with signs and wonders. He confirmed the word that He inspired them to speak and the word that He inspired them to write down in the New Testament. We find in Mark chapter 16 and verse 20 that these miracles assisted in delivering truth to humanity. We've already talked about initially how this truth came through Christ, then it came through to the apostles, and now we see how it is extended forward because that these miracles were used to confirm the Word, to help deliver it to humanity. The very last work of the, or, or verse of the Gospel of Mark where is recorded these words, And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the Word through the accompanying signs. Amen. It's very clear as we look at these passages, and we could cite many more passages that indicate the same thing, but we see that the purpose of these miracles was to bring about the confirmation of God's Word, to deliver it to all of men, to confirm that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. So we can turn to the book of Acts, and we can see this purpose and the use of these Holy Spirit gifts in the first century church. Paul covered these gifts, performing miracles along with all of these other individual gifts. In fact, he gives a list here in 1 Corinthians 12 of nine of these spiritual gifts. He taught on this in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13, and 1 Corinthians 14. And we're going to look at some different passages from all of these different chapters. But I want us to read this list of spiritual gifts together so that we can have a more definite, detailed list of what we're talking about. It begins here, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For one to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. I want you to notice these 
terms to one, to another, and to each one individually. These are used over and over again in this reference to these spiritual gifts. Why was he using these phrases? Because these gifts were given in part. They were given piecemeal. One received one gift, another received another of these gifts, another received another gift. The same Spirit was behind these gifts, but different individuals had different parts. No one source contained all of the revelation of God at this time. We should not minimize the importance of these gifts. Without them, the early church would have been missing a vital tool for the growth of the church. Think about one that heard this preaching of the gospel. How would he know that the person preaching that gospel was truly from God? He would know because they performed these different signs, these different miracles. He would know that the message was validated, and he would be able to receive that message. After he received the message of the gospel and he obeyed and become a member of the church, how would he know how to worship? How would he know how to lead his individual life from day to day? How would he understand the message of God of sanctification and how that a person must continue to work to, to get closer and closer to God? The only way that he would know at this time, because the New Testament was not there to guide, was through the use of these gifts. And that's why they were very important. They were needed and they were vital blessings to these early, early Christians. But remember, they were done in part. They were not complete. And we're going to notice that the same word that establishes the use of these gifts of the Spirit also teaches that these gifts would cease. And we're going to continue to look in this same general context. We're going to move into the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. You will note verses 1 through 7 give the characteristics of charity or agape love. And then we come to verse number 8 of this passage, and we find these words. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they shall cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away. So what does he say? He uses three of these spiritual gifts that we just read in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12. He uses three out of the nine to represent the whole body of the spiritual gifts. And what does he say about these? He says they are going to fail, they are going to cease, and they're going to vanish away. And then in verse 9, he tells us why. Why would these things so vitally needed at this time, be going to come to an end. He says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. As we mentioned, no one person had all of these. They were piecemeal. And so that's the reason. It was in part. They prophesied in part. And now he, in verse 10, gives us a time frame for when these things would be done away. He said, When that which is perfect has come, that which is in part shall be done away. Spiritual gifts of the first century 
were not the most excellent way. Back up to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Paul said there's something coming that's better. It's more excellent. And he describes it as the thing which is perfect. Let's continue to read in 1 Corinthians 13 in this context. We're going to pick up now in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. So he uses a couple of illustrations here to make his point that he's just made about things in part being done away. And he uses the idea of something infant versus something that's mature, a child that does certain things and is a certain way in his immaturity, but when he reaches adulthood, he puts away those childish things. He's talking about these spiritual gifts. Back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, that we read earlier about God's signs, he said, at the first, at the first, there was a time element in that passage. And it shows us that there's a time element for which these spiritual gifts were to be used. And they were to be used in the infancy of the church until it grew into a more mature state. And that mature state depended on the perfect thing that would be coming. Then in verse 12, he mentions a mirror. How much can we see if we look into a mirror that's foggy? All we can, the best we can see is just an outline. We can't see the details of our features. And that's his illustration here. That when these spiritual gifts were needed, when they were done in part, they could see an outline, but they couldn't see all of it in one place. They couldn't see the detail. And this is the meaning of the illustration that he uses here in verse 12. This is not the only place in the New Testament that the Word of God is spoken of as being a mirror. Let's turn to James chapter 1 and look at verses 23 through 25. And remember, we said we're going to use the Bible to define these terms. We're going to look at these things in context. And we're able to take James chapter 1 and use it to help us to understand 1 Corinthians 13. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. So he's using this same example of a mirror. And he he says the mirror is the word. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and it not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So this mirror is used in a little different perspective, but it's still used to illustrate the Word of God. And what word? The perfect law of liberty. This defines what Paul was speaking about. When that which is perfect is come, 
that which is in part shall be done away. And James says that we can look into this and we can see ourselves clearly. The Word of God, the perfect law of liberty, the complete final revelation of God, we can look there and we can see in detail. We can see specifically what God would have us to do in our lives. And so as we look at these verses and we tie them together, and we look at the meaning of what is being taught, we can see that certainly the Bible says that these miracles would be done away, that they would be done away at the time the New Testament was complete. That was somewhere around the year of A.D. 100 that the New Testament was compiled and made available to people to begin to study and to follow as they followed God. We want to turn now and talk about Holy Spirit baptism. Why would we need to talk about this? Because this is an issue that's involved with the idea that miracles are still valid today, that they're still being performed today. Because people would contend that they are being baptized by the Holy Spirit today and thereby they have the power to perform the same miracles that we read about in the first century. This special Bible designation regarding the initial burst of power from the Holy Spirit was to jumpstart the establishment of the church. It's referred to as the Holy Spirit baptism. John the Baptist predicted all four, in all four Gospels that Christ would baptize with the Holy Spirit baptism in the future. He did not prophesy that Christ would be baptized with that, but he said he would be the one that would baptize others. So let's see what's revealed about this matter and see if we can clear up the confusion that surrounds the Holy Spirit baptism in our religious world today. A part of rightly dividing God's Word is to look at who is speaking who is being spoken to, and to keep the information in the right context. And we're going to find, as Christ talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, He talked to His apostles. They were always the audience when He made a promise that there would be a Holy Spirit baptism coming. We look at Luke chapter 24, verse 49, here toward the very end of the Gospel of Luke after Christ had died and was buried and resurrected, after He had been seen of many witnesses and was about to ascend back in heaven, He made a promise. He said, Behold, I send the promise of My Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So Christ told them, You need to stay in the city of Jerusalem. And you need to wait because this power from on high is about to happen. So the very same writer, Luke, writes in Acts chapter 1. It's almost a continuation of it, what he wrote in Luke chapter 24. And what does he say here? And being assembled together with them, he commanded them, Christ commanded them, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, Ye have heard from me. We just read that promise that Christ gave in Luke 24 in verse number uh, 49. And now He's reminding them of this 
In verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we don't have to wonder any longer. What is being described is Holy Spirit baptism. It was this promise to the apostles. It was the promise of Christ after He ascended into heaven. You know, in John 15, He told them, I'm going to send a comforter to you. And that comforter will deliver to you all truth. And now He's being more specific about this comforter coming and coming in a special way. There's going to be a baptism of the Holy Spirit and it's going to be on the apostles. We move to Acts chapter 2 and verse number 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. The pronoun they connects back to who? The apostles. They're named specifically right before this. They added an apostle to replace Judas. And we have an account of that. And then the, the context is for the apostles. And they were gathered together when the day of Pentecost came. And then we continue to read verses 2 through 4. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What is the definition of baptize or baptism? It's to emerge or to submerge. So if we were looking for a submergence into the Holy Spirit, what would we be looking for? Exactly what we read here. This was a room. The apostles were in the room, and the Bible says the Holy Spirit completely filled that room. They were submerged. They were immersed in the Holy Spirit. This was the baptism that Christ had promised. Divided tongues as of fire set on each of them, a sign that they received this special measure of the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible says in verse 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues. So one of the signs of being baptized with the Holy Spirit was speaking in tongues. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is characterized by speaking in other languages. And we'll come back and notice that a little bit more in a moment. We find in Acts chapter 10, which was approximately three years later, we find another case of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Up until this point in time of A.D. 36, all of the converts that we know about were Jews. These Jews were very reluctant to receive the Gentiles, into the kingdom of heaven. And so we read in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse number 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those that heard the word. What had happened? Peter had been led to the house of Cornelius through a vision. He went there and he observed the Holy Spirit coming upon these people. What does verse 45 say? And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. 
Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that they should be baptized who had received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. The special purpose of the miraculous part that we read about here in verse 44 and 45 and 46 was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And notice that it was marked by the fact that these Gentiles spake in tongues. This was not their conversion. Their conversion is described in verses 47 and 48. They were baptized in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for their remission of sins, and then their conversion took place. This other baptism was contrasted with the water baptism because it was different. Its purpose was special. It was used only rarely and with specific people for God to give a sign of these things that He wanted to note. In Acts 11, verses 15 through 17, Peter experienced this thing at the, this event at the house of Cornelius, and then he went back to Jerusalem. And he was talking about what had happened. And I want you to notice what he said. As I, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, speaking about these Gentiles, as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Holy Spirit baptism. It's described in that way, the event that took place. The chapter before in Acts chapter 10. There's not a single reference to Holy Spirit baptism after this event is spoken about by Peter in Acts 11. Again, a specialized role of the Holy Spirit that fulfilled its purpose. We don't need it today. We don't have it today. That's straightforward, and it's the truth as we find it in God's Word. By the time Paul penned Ephesians 4, verse 5, he said there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. What is the one baptism he was referring to? Was it a baptism of the Holy Spirit? No, it was the, the baptism that we use today when people obey the gospel to bring them into contact with the blood of Christ, being buried in water in the likeness of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, arising to walk in newness of life. These apostles were given the power to perform all of these gifts. They were also given something in addition to that. They were given the power to pass those gifts on to other people. And we're going to find in our study of Scripture that they were the only ones that could pass that forward to others. We're going to notice as we close in a, in a moment, we're going to read Acts chapter 8. We're going to see Philip there, who was a recipient of having the apostles' hands laid on him. He had the ability to perform miracles, but he couldn't pass that forward. It's evident that only the apostles could impart this power. It's very interesting 
that just about the time the apostles passed away and the ones they may have imparted gifts to passed away, the use of these gifts ceased. That was the same time that the New Testament came into its complete form. We see as we put these parts together how that it all fits. We want to look at the quality of today's miracles compared to those that we find in the New Testament. I'm going to ask you to recall some of these miracles. Acts chapter 3, verse 2, there was a man who had been lame from his mother's womb. He was healed completely and immediately. This was an act that could be given no other origin rather than the work of God. And we see in Acts 4, verse 16, that even the enemies of the apostles admitted that this was from God. They said, What shall we do, men? For indeed that notable miracle has been done through them. It is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. They wanted to deny it. They wanted to disprove it, but they couldn't. It was something that superseded nature. It was something where a person who was documented with a severe illness was completely healed, and it happened instantaneously. As they grabbed and pulled him up, he was completely healed. This is the nature of these miracles that we read about in the New Testament. Do modern so-called miracles measure up to the Bible test? Where are those that can pick up serpents or drink anything deadly? Where are those that can raise the dead? These are the quality of miracles that occurred. The quality of so-called miracles today are far below what we find in Scripture. Most often when we see events where someone's claiming to perform a miracle, they're healing a disease that can't be seen or defined. What about modern day speaking in tongues? We read in Acts chapter 2 earlier the account, verse 4, where the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began speaking in tongues. Skip down one verse and we see that these tongues were languages. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. These were not things that couldn't be understood. These were languages. Languages that these men had never studied. But the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak those. Peter stood up and spoke before people from 15 different nations. And he spoke in his native tongue, and all of those nationalities heard in their native tongue. When we read about speaking in tongues, it wasn't what we often see today. Things that can't be understood. Things that can't be interpreted. People who claim that the Holy Spirit is moving them and they can't stop it. And they, they are active within the assembly of the church in a worship service. And the things that they do are disruptive. And yet these are the things that are claimed to be speaking in tongues today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul goes through several things that regulated the speaking of tongues. In verse 19, he said, Speaking in a understood language is more preferred than speaking in tongues. Why would he say that? Because when we understand, we're edified. 
And he's making the point that all things are to be done unto edification. He comes to verse number 28 and he says, If there's not an interpreter, that a person speaking in a tongue or a language needs to be silent. He comes and he says, If anything is to be revealed, they need to do it by one by one. A person needs to sit still until it's his turn to be in front of the, the audience and speak. And then he needs to do that where others are listening and in consideration of what's being said. Verse 32 says, The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. What does that mean? Paul is simply saying those that had these spiritual gifts, those that could speak in tongues, they could control those tongues. They had the capability to sit still and to be quiet until the, the appropriate time to stand up and to speak in their tongue, and that tongue would have needed to be interpreted. There were gifts of tongues, there were gifts of interpretation of tongues, and all of these were gifts that were, done, were used for edification. We compare today what is taught as speaking in tongues, and we see that it's something far different from this. In verse 34 and 35, the women are called on to be silent in the worship assembly of the church. Many times those who are speaking in tongues are women that are standing up in the middle of the assembly and they're speaking and they are not silent. You come on down in 1 Corinthians 14 and it speaks of the fact that God is not the author of confusion and it speaks of the fact that we should do all things decently and in order. So as we look at these tongues along with other gifts used in the New Testament, we see that they were regulated and they were used in a proper way. What about a later revelation of God? Today we have people that say they've been baptized by the Holy Spirit, they're connected to the Holy Spirit, God's bringing them something later and something in addition to God's Word. What does Revelations, the last chapter, say? Don't add to anything that's written here. What does Galatians 1, 8 and 9 say? Even if an angel dropped down from here, speaking something other than what is written, we're to reject that teaching. It's emphasized in verse 9 that we are not to accept any later revelation from God. Consider this about some revelation. If someone is having a revelation and something is brought to them that's in addition to the Bible, then it's to be rejected. If it's less than the Bible, it's not as complete as this revelation. If we're teaching the Bible, then we're not teaching something that we're inspired to do, but we are teaching the inspired Word of God. The miraculous gift of prophecy ceased when the New Testament was complete, written down, and preserved. We read in the Bible that there's other sources of signs and wonders other than God. We read in Thessalonians 2, verse 9, that there is the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. We're told in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits 
whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse 6, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We have a litmus test to check everything that we're going to listen, believe, and to give God credit for bringing to us. And that litmus test is the Word of God. We can tell between spirits of truth and spirits of error by going and rightly dividing God's Word and applying it. As we conclude the lesson this morning, I would like for you to read with me through this account in Acts chapter 8. A lot of the points that we've made are illustrated here in this chapter. If you'd like to pick up a Bible and, and turn there, if it's easier for you to read, we're going to read through this account. It says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Philip was one of the ones that the apostles laid hands on in Acts chapter 6. He was set apart to do special things for the church at that time. Here it says he went to Samaria and he began to preach Christ. Verse 6, And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a, with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame, and lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city. The Bible says that the multitude listened to Philip. It gives us a reason why they listened to him. Why they knew that he was a spokesman from God. It says they heard and saw the miracles that he did. And, the, and we have a description of casting out of unclean spirits. There was great joy in the city. But now notice verse 9, But there was a certain man named Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Is it possible to fool people with smoke and mirrors? Is it possible to do things that some people might attribute to God? Certainly it is. We see that here. Simon had done it for a long time, and he had a great following. And these people said, he has to be a great, great man of God. Why did they say that? Because of these things that he was doing. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which he did. What did the sorcerer think when he saw the real thing? He believed that Philip was from God. Faith came into his heart and he obeyed the gospel. You see, you can tell a difference in the quality of what the sorcerer was doing and what Philip was doing. And I think today, if we're discerning and we use judgment, we can go to God's Word and we can make those same applications as we see 
that the Samaritans did in this case. Verse 14 says, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Why did John and Peter have to travel from Jerusalem to Samaria? Because Philip was performing these miracles. He had the real thing. It was effective. His word was confirmed. People were converted, even a sorcerer. But he could not pass those gifts forward to any others. And those gifts were needed as we studied earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so we learned that John and Peter were called, and they came, and verse 17 says they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Simon knew exactly where this power came from. He didn't offer money to Philip. He offered money to Peter and John because they had this power. They had been baptized in the Holy Spirit and they could pass these powers forward. He said, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right with God. Simon reverted back to his old nature, didn't he? He saw the amount of money that he could make by charging people when he could pass these gifts forward to them. And he tried to buy it with money. And Peter confronted him and he said, Your heart is not right. You need to repent. You need to turn away from these evil thoughts. He even says in verse 23 that you're poisoned by bitterness and bound in iniquity. So the account tells us that Simon asked to have prayer from every appearance, he repented, he turned away, and he continued to walk the Christian walk. I believe that the points that we read here in Acts 8 point back to a lot of what we discussed in commandment form, where we read these verses and we see those things exemplified here. As we summarize our lesson for the morning, God is at work today. His hand can be seen in creation around us. His work of providence can be seen in answered prayers. His work in conversion through His powerful Word can be seen in the lives of Christians. Miracles, however, have ceased having served the purpose for which they were intended. This morning we want to conclude by offering an invitation. We mentioned earlier that some people require a sign or seek a sign. Others have to have wisdom. All that we need to obey God is to have a knowledge of His Word. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4 says, "...whereby when ye read, you may understand." We pray that you have read God's Word, that you have an understanding, that you've obeyed the Gospel and you're a part of His kingdom. If you have not done that, you need to take care of that. You need to be a child of God to receive the blessings that He offers to all of His family. If you're here this morning 
and you need the prayers of the church or if the church can help you in any way, we would ask you to come forward and to be seated here on the front pew as we stand and sing the song selected.